We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online, and we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community. starting here again from this uh, room that may look a little bit like the room where uh, you read the Bible. Uh, We have over 600 people who are here at BlackRock committing to this idea of reading through the Bible or reading through the New Testament in a year according to a little reading plan that we're doing together. And it's January still, so it's not too late to uh, jump in to read it, live it. If you're on this reading plan, then uh, you are just embarking now on the part in the Bible that's called the law. And uh, you may have some questions about what you're reading. Uh, Right now, you should be in Exodus. And uh, in Exodus, uh, if you haven't got there yet, you'll be reading this uh, command from God. God commands this. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And then you'll be reading the book of Numbers where God says, I command you to celebrate the Passover at the appointed time, at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And then back in Exodus, you'll come across these words from the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All three of these statements are commands from God in the Bible. Like me, you probably have three different reactions to these three different commands. To the command not to, goat, not to cook a goat in its mother's milk, I say, my grocery store doesn't even carry Campbell's goat and mom's milk soup. I don't think this applies to me. Uh, to the Passover command, I say, God, I have to celebrate Passover? And if I do, can I also take all the other Jewish holidays off of work as well? And then this last command about covenanting, I say, I think this applies to me. But after this goat soup stuff, maybe not. You know, uh, this confusion makes me want to skip the law in the Bible and just consider it dead history. And if I do that, I'm committing a big mistake. It's a mistake because God's law in the Bible is not just history. It's an important part of his story. 
God has his law as a chapter in his story in the Bible because without it, I can't understand aspects of his whole story and I can't understand important parts of my part in that story. So if this room represents a reading of God's law that considers it just history, God wants me to break out of this tiny reading of scripture and step out on the massive stage of his big and ongoing story that he invites me into with every page of scripture, including his law, where in his law, he's inviting me to discover more about who he is and his perfection, discover who the Savior is in Jesus, and discover who I am as part of his story, including the chapter of the story that is called the law. So let's start by uh, defining what we're talking about today. The law refers to the detailed instructions that God gave Moses as found in the Bible books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these detailed instructions cover a multitude of different uh, issues and uh, But what most people think of when they think of the law is the collection of 613 commands. And it is very important that I understand how these 613 commands fit into God's story. Because if I don't understand how these 613 commands fit into God's story, eventually a puffed up Bible critic will come up and eat my lunch. If this has not happened already, uh, someday you will innocently be saying to someone how much God speaks to you through the Bible. And uh, instead of applauding your uh, Bible reading, uh, this someone will say, oh, so you believe that people who have sex outside of marriage should be executed. Oh, so you believe that God's law forbids the wearing of fabric of uh, two different threads of two different kinds interweaved together. Oh, you believe that God, God's law forbids you to eat pork or shell, shellfish. And you say, uh, no, I don't believe those things. And then the critic will say, well, then you don't believe that the Bible is 100% accurate because the Bible says all those things. Now what do you say? Maybe nothing unless you understand how God's law fits into God's story. Starting with the fact that God's 613 commands fall into three categories of social laws, spiritual laws, and ceremonial laws, with each category fulfilling a different role in God's story. So let's, uh, let's start with these uh, three categories, starting with social laws. The social laws were temporary commands given by God to define and defend the temporary nation that would give birth to the Savior. Remember last time we studied how God said to one particular man named Abraham, I will bless you by keeping your family together until you become a mighty nation. And through this nation, I will give birth to a Savior who will make you a blessing to the whole world. This is God's story. But the tricky part was 
defining this nation when for hundreds of years this nation had no land because they were nomads. So how could Israel be defined as a nation when for many years they did not have defined borders? Well, God answered this question by making his people a nation bordered by social laws. God boundary marked their lives through laws of circumcision, laws about what they could eat and not eat, laws about what they could do and what they should never do. And God always intended that these social laws would be temporary, which is why in the New Testament, God makes it clear that if I follow Jesus, I can eat all the pork and the shellfish that I want because those kosher food laws serve their purpose as one chapter in God's ongoing story and then led to another chapter in God's story. So next time, a Bible critic accuses you of being inconsistent because you eat pork. Say, when you were uh, six years old, uh, did your dad command that you hold his hand when you crossed the street? And does your father command this today? If not, does that mean that your dad is false and inconsistent? No, it just reflects the development of your family story. And the Bible is God's ongoing family story. But now let's go back to the definition. Back to the definition of social laws. Uh, notice that the social law not only defined this nation, but it also defends it through hundreds of case law examples of how to administer justice and how to protect the weak in God's nation. The most famous case law uh, was an example in scripture given if there was a situation where an aggressor uh, hit a person in the face and that person lost an eye or a tooth. Now keep in mind that 4,000 years ago, uh, Families, opposing families, would feud over simple injuries like this, such that the back and forth vengeance left people dead. So when the Bible commands in the law an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the Bible is not commanding retaliation. The Bible is restraining retaliation. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is God teaching his people to seek fairness with each other and not revenge. Now, the social law also does include death penalties for things like sex outside of marriage. But when it comes to that Bible critic who uh, comes to accuse you of wanting to uh, murder or you know, execute people today according to uh, Mosaic law, Again, God gave these death penalty laws as temporary laws for a temporary nation that passed away soon after it fulfilled its purpose of giving birth to the Savior. But what remains, of course, is the truth that God was lifting up through those death penalty laws. In the death penalty laws, God was lifting up his passion for the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of the family, and the sanctity of his own person and name. See, all the social laws are temporary, but behind them is an overarching, timeless truth that we are meant to grasp. 
The social laws demonstrate the timeless truth that God loves people. Let me dive deeper now into this to show you what we mean. First, God's social law treated all people as equally valuable. The social law that God gave Moses uh, was not the only law code in the ancient world, but it's certainly, God's law certainly was the best. Uh, I mean, I did some research on the ancient law codes that were contemporary to uh, God's law in the Bible. And I was going to light up the screen with uh, some of the examples of Akkadian law and Hammurabi law, but I decided, frankly, that you would find it just offensive. Because all of these ancient law codes were unanimous in their view that upper-class men and their families were valuable, and that everybody else was property, with women being of reduced value and children being of least value, such that if somebody killed a upper-class nobleman, that person experienced the death penalty, no questions asked. But if a nobleman killed his wife, the penalty was 100 bucks. If, uh, if, if a nobleman kills the wife of a servant, it was 10 bucks. If he kills the daughter of a servant, it was a few pennies. But God's law introduced in Scripture was revolutionary. It was a revolutionary concept that all human beings had equal value. To God, the murder of man or woman, rich or poor, servant or master, adult or child, all received the same sentence, the death penalty. Why? Because all human life is equally valuable in God's eyes. This revolutionary truth came to this world through God's love as a result of the fact that he loves all people equally. Next, God's social law protected the poor and the weak. When you read God's law, you will hear this phrase repeated over and over again. You must provide for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Whereas in Akkadian and Hammurabi law, that law gave preferential treatment to the powerful and the strong and rich, God's law gives preferential treatment to the servants, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, because God loves all people, and he was training his people to share his value of the equality of all people in his eyes, and love and compassion in that name. Finally, God's social law promoted health and happiness and prosperity. 21st century research has confirmed the amazing fact that God's social law and scripture really did promote well-being among his people. Uh, for instance, God's specific food laws were point for point the best food advice when it comes to disease avoidance among his people. Uh, God's health laws uh, regarding quarantine protected his people uh, and show this amazing foreknowledge of germ theory 
thousands of years before uh, it was realized in time. And God's laws on how to increase productivity and wealth and prosperity are proven guidelines that are used today. Now, believe it or not, this desire for prosperity brings us back to the command, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Cooking a goat in its mother's milk was not a dinner recipe. It was a method of pagan sacrifice. at, at the time of the Mosaic Law, uh, pagans around God's people were convinced that nature spirits would shower prosperity upon you if you made a sacrifice of cooking a young goat in its mother's milk. Another pagan myth was that if you wore fabric of mixed interweaved different kinds of threads, the nature spirits would bless you with fertile livestock and fertile soil. And so some of God's people chose to do both. They chose to give tithes and thank offerings to God, but just to cover their bases, they also cooked some goat soup uh, so that the nature spirits would bless them as well. And God says, no way. If you want me and my blessings, then all your offerings, all your sacrifices, all your thanks and your trust must be in me alone. That's the kind of personal relationship we're going to have. And so this obscure command that you are not to cook goat soup points me back to the timeless truth that God wants a relationship with me that calls me to put all my trust in him and give all my gratitude to him and not trust magic soup, not trust my lucky interweaved shirt, Not trust the lottery, not trust the stock market, but God calls me to trust him and give him thanks for all that I have and him alone. Which leads to the next major category in God's law, spiritual laws. What are the spiritual laws? What what is a spiritual law that God gave uh, to Moses? The spiritual laws are eternal truths about God's character, which are to be reflected in his people and in their eternal relationship with him. There are spiritual laws throughout the whole of the Mosaic material, emphasizing God's personal perfection, God's excellence of character, emphasizing God's complete purity. The spiritual law teaches that there is no sin in God. God is 100% pure. And truthfully, we humans, we cannot really conceive of 100% purity. Uh, To us, purity is kind of a relevant, relativistic or fuzzy concept. For instance, uh, we have a federal agency uh, that is uh, dedicated uh, to monitoring and supposedly uh, protecting the purity of what we eat. Uh, It's called the FDA, and the FDA puts out standards of purity on everything that gets sold in the market. I went online to see the FDA standards for different foods. And it turns out that the FDA has a very interesting definition of purity. For instance, according to the FDA, apple butter 
is pure unless it, one, has a mold count that is more than 12%. Two, apple butter is pure unless it has more than four rodent hairs per 100 grams. And three, has more than five whole insects per 100 grams, not counting mites, aphids, or scale insects. Apparently, mites and aphids don't matter to the FDA. But as for me in my house, we don't want mites and aphids or even three rodent hairs in our apple butter. Uh, okay, just one more, just for giggles. Uh, according to the FDA, fig paste is pure unless it, one, is more than 10% insect infected, and two, has more than 13 insect heads per 100 gram. So according to the FDA, if you if you've got less than 13 insect heads in your fig paste, you should just stop whining and put it on your toast. And I'm going to stop there because uh, the Black Rock Cafe has told me that already our fig paste sales have plummeted today. Uh, so, see, to the human mind, purity is just kind of a fuzzy concept. Uh, I can have some impurity in my life and still consider myself pure enough for God and the FDA. But this is not how God sees it. God recoils from one impurity in my life. You know, like I am revolted by one rodent hair in my apple butter. God is revolted by one sin and it separates me from a relationship with God. And so God gives me the spiritual law to show me my impurities, which is very important because if I do not understand that I have sin and that my sin separates me from God, then I cannot understand what Jesus did on the cross or my need for a savior. But the spiritual law does much more than just convince me of my need for a savior. To get to that much more, let's take a look at a classic example of God's spiritual law. It's what we call the Ten Commandments. And these ten spiritual laws are eternal truths about God's character, which God wants to see reflected in my character, in my life. Such that, number one, God has no equal and must be first in my life. Two, God cannot be reduced by my mental image of him. Three, God's name is holy and I must revere him. Four, God is my Sabbath rest and I must enjoy him. Five, God is a parent and so I must honor mine. Six, like God, I must be a giver of life, not a taker. And seven, like God, I must be faithful. Eight, like God, I must be a selfish giver and not a grabber. Like God, I must only speak truth. And 10, like God, I must be in contentment and live in contentment, not in coveting and desire for more and more. If I am his child, God wants these 10 truths reflected in my character and the way I live. Can I do this by myself, by my own strength, by my own dint of effort? No. But can I grow to reflect God's character 
when his spirit indwells me and empowers me to do so? Yes. And this is God's story. This is God's story, which he promises in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the new covenant I will make with my people after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my spiritual law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, when I become God's child through Jesus Christ, he fills me with his spirit and his spirit writes his law, his spiritual law on my heart so that I can grow more and more in God's character and become more and more part of his story. See, this means that the law of God in the Old Testament is not dead history, but it is an ongoing history in each and every follower of Jesus. I am part of God's story in the law. As I read through the Mosaic material, I need to be looking for these spiritual laws that teach me about God's character, knowing that in each and every one of these spiritual laws that I encounter, I am reading the content of what God's indwelling spirit is writing on my heart so that I can become more and more like God and become more and more a part of his wonderful story. And that leads us to the last category of God's law, ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are all God's instructions regarding the rituals of worship. That's the tabernacle, that's the priests, that's the sacrifices, offerings, and festivals like Passover. Put all together, the ceremonial laws are temporary rituals that foreshadow the work of an eternal savior. So uh, let's put this together. Uh, the social laws are temporary commands for a temporary nation. The spiritual laws are eternal truths for an eternal relationship with God. And then the ceremonial laws are a combination of the temporary and eternal. The ceremonial laws are temporary rituals foreshadowing an eternal savior. The spiritual laws, the spiritual laws teach me that my sin separates me from God. The ceremonial laws teach me that forgiveness is possible when my sin is paid for by a blood sacrifice. And all those animal sacrifices described in the law in the Old Testament history were, of course, designed as just foreshadowings of what Jesus would do on the cross, what Jesus would do once and for all to save souls of those who were overshadowed by death. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And so I love reading the ceremonial laws and putting on my little Sherlock Holmes cap because when you read anything related to the ceremonial laws, you can find hints and foreshadows of what Jesus did on the cross and Jesus and his cross. For instance, God told his people how to arrange the different articles uh, of furniture in the tabernacle, which was the portable temple. Uh, and, uh, and we can see in the arrangement of the uh, tabernacle furniture, we can see now we know what Jesus did. We can, it seems obvious that God was foreshadowing the cross. 
Let's also look at the climax of the uh, Passover story in Egypt. Uh, there was this final plague of, of death of the firstborn in each household, and God told his people that they would be saved from death if they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the top and the sides of their door. And now knowing what Jesus did, it seems obvious that God was foreshadowing the cross. Now, you may say, Maybe this foreshadowing isn't really a foreshadowing. Maybe it's just a, a coincidence because, after all, you know, when, Jesus, when Moses wrote the, uh, the law, it was still a thousand years before the cross was used as an instrument of execution. Hmm. I don't think it was a coincidence. I don't think it was a coincidence. I think it's proof that... When I'm reading God's law in Scripture, I'm reading the words of a divine author outside of time who's telling the greatest story ever told. And as further proof of this, I'd like to share one more thing regarding the Passover and just see if you think this is a coincidence. God told every family there in Egypt that, on, uh, that there would be a, a, a salvation from this angel of death. And that would start with a process that happened on the 10th day of the first month. That they should select a Passover lamb. And then on the 14th day of that first month, that's when they should sacrifice the Passover lamb at twilight, which was considered the ninth hour or 3 p.m., and they would be saved from the angel of death. And when the angel of death did pass over the homes of God's people, God told them to remember what he did. He said, never forget it. You must celebrate the Passover every year, and the time you should do it is on the 10th day of the first month, you are to bring a lamb and select the lamb. And then on the 14th day of the first month, you are to sacrifice it. So this tradition continued for 1,400 years, such that in Jesus' day, on the 10th day of the first month, all the lambs were brought from the fields around Jerusalem, and they were paraded into Jerusalem so that on the 14th day of the first month, they would be sacrificed one by one with the final lamb sacrificed at twilight at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And this con tradition continued until one holy week in 33 A.D., when along with thousands of others of these Passover lambs, on the 10th day of the first month, Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem as God's select Passover lamb. And then on the 14th day, a few days later on that first month, Jesus died on the cross at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. And he cried, it is finished. And he was the final Passover lamb, whose blood sets free all who follow him from death itself. I do not think that this is a coincidence. I think this is the evidence of a divine author telling a grand story that begins with social and ceremonial laws and then culminates in a Savior who is alive and with us today and who wants 
with his spirit infilling us to write his spiritual law introduced in the mosaic uh, Mount Sinai, write that spiritual law that makes me more like God and more and more a part of his story. If you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. Amen.